Section 17 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Moat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 12. Wakefield. The Duke of York now seemed to have got all he could want. He was not, it is true, actually crowned king, although he had intended to be crowned on November 1st. But the legal position of himself and his friends had been made thoroughly secure. All the disabling acts of the Coventry Parliament of the previous year had been repealed. The king's favorite ministers, whom York felt to be his enemies, had been removed. In their place, the duke's firm supporters had been raised up. The duke himself had been put at the summit of the kingdom. He was acknowledged heir to the throne to the exclusion of the king's own son. His person was to be sacred, and any attempt made against it would be treason. He was protector of the realm, so as to be ruler, even before he came to reign. He was to be created Prince of Wales and Earl of Chester, and a special income of ten thousand marks annually was assigned to him to support his new duties and dignities. Yet all this came to nothing, for he had delayed in order to get the empty titles before he had conquered the kingdom. All the north was still to be conquered. The further Richard went in legally depressing the Lancastrians and exalting himself, the more chance he gave for reaction to set in, and for the still unconquered Lancastrian lords to gather their forces and concert their plans. Here, then, was his great mistake. He, who had previously shown himself so strong, so self-restrained, now had ruined his cause by his haste and delay. Haste in grasping at titles, delay in striking at the enemies in the field. Between July and September, before the Battle of Northampton and his landing in Lancashire, he was losing valuable time in Ireland. During the proceedings of the October Parliament, while he hurried the estates into passing vain laws for his own satisfaction, he was losing valuable time in London. When he did actually march north, the forces against him had grown too strong, and he only marched out to his ruin. Yet the Yorkist position after the Battle of Northampton had really been a good one. It only wanted one more defeat of the Lancastrians to make the Yorkist ascendancy possible, both in law and in fact. This was shown by the accession of the young Edward as king immediately after his victory at Mortimer's Cross. If Richard, after the first victory at Northampton, instead of waiting for a parliament, had hastened over from Ireland and struck another hard blow at the Lancastrians who were still in the field, he might then safely have left the rest to Parliament. But he would not defer his legal recognition. He wanted the titles, the strong legal position first. He would do the fighting afterwards. Thus it often is. A man who for years has waited and worked with the greatest self-control may ruin himself at last when his goal is all but reached by an over-hasty leap. The Earl of Northumberland, the Lords Clifford and Dacres, came together and held a council at York and mustered their troops. They sent out bands of men, 
and laid waste the estates in Yorkshire belonging to Duke Richard and to the Earl of Salisbury. Shortly before, at the end of October probably, the Duke of Somerset with Andrew Trollope and some others who had accompanied him from Guine crossed over from Dieppe to Dorset and was admitted into Corfe Castle. There he received a message from the Queen, who was still in Wales, to gather his tenants together and go north to Yorkshire to join the northern lords. A similar message was sent to the Earl of Devonshire. While the Yorkists were still delaying in London, the Duke of Somerset and the Earl of Devonshire were able to march with an armed force of the men of the West through Bath, Cirencester, Evesham, and Coventry into Yorkshire. On arriving in the north they found everything ready. The Queen had been busy sending messages to all her friends and supporters. The whole rising was so carefully organized and the secret so well kept that the Yorkist leaders seemed to have been taken by surprise. When rumors of it got about, people refused credence to them, but said, Ye talk right, ye would it were, and gave no heed. Yet the Lancastrians were believed to have got together no less than 15,000 troops in the north. The queen, who had done so much to concert this rising, went to Scotland to await the event. At last, the Duke of York began to move. On December 9th, he set out for the north with his second son, Edmund, Earl of Rutland, and the Earl of Salisbury. He had a regular force of knights and squires, and a large body of London citizens under John Harrow the Mercer, who had been so prominent in the siege of the Tower of London. With Harrow was associated in this expedition another Mercer called James Pickering. The total number of York's forces seems to have been about 6,000 men. They went with the king's commission to put down the rebels of the north. The Earl of Warwick stayed behind in London with the king. York's eldest son, Edward, Earl of March, was on the Welsh border at Shrewsbury, directing operations against the Lancastrian gentry of North Wales, who were showing considerable activity under Jasper Tudor, Earl of Pembroke. As the forces of the Duke of York proceeded northwards, a sharp skirmish occurred at Worksop between his vanguard and a force under the Duke of Somerset. York's advance guard was practically destroyed. This must have occurred about December 16, 1460. On the 21st, the Yorkists arrived at Sandal Castle, one of Richard's chief residences, two miles from Wakefield. At Sandal they kept their Christmas. The Duke of Somerset and Earl of Northumberland kept theirs at Pontefract. There was probably some tacit understanding that the Holy Day should pass in peace. Five days later, December 30th, the Battle of Wakefield was fought. The truth about this disaster is very difficult to obtain. The Duke of Somerset evidently had a very strong force, including great lords such as the Duke of Exeter, the Earl of Northumberland, Lord Roos, Neville, Clifford. Among the officers of lower rank was the experienced Captain Andrew Trollope, who had come with Somerset from Guine. The Yorkists had to send parties over the country to collect stores. Five different authorities say that there was a definite truce at the time. The abbot Wedhamstead even says that negotiations had been entered into, and a certain day fixed for the battle. But this is very unlikely. 
party feeling ran far too high for either side to give up all chance of taking the other at a disadvantage. The time was past when battles were looked on as a sort of tournament to be arranged methodically by heralds and pursuivants. This at least seems clear. The Lancastrians, with superior forces, took the Yorkists by surprise toward evening as some Yorkist foraging parties were returning and were still outside their own lines under Sandal. The actual battle cannot have lasted long. The Yorkist forces must have been taken at a terrible disadvantage, for at the end of the fight and pursuit, the Duke of York, and it is said no less than 2,500 of his men, were dead. The Lancastrians are said to have lost only 200. There was evidently no order given on the Lancastrian side, as Warwick had commanded at Northampton that the gentry should be killed and the commons spared. Indeed, it was probably best in the long run that no such distinctions should be made, for nothing but hard fighting to a finish would ever definitely settle the question at issue. But there is no excuse for the extreme cruelty according to which, when the battle was won, no quarter was given. Many were killed in the actual fight. The Duke of York, Lord Thomas Neville, son of Salisbury, the Londoners, Harrow and Pickering. The Earl of Rutland, York's son, eighteen years old, tried to escape by mingling with the band of Lord Clifford, which was pursuing the flying Yorkists toward Wakefield. But Clifford recognized him, and although the young man begged for mercy on his knees on the bridge at Wakefield, stabbed him to the heart with a dagger, exclaiming, By God's blood, thy father slew mine, and so will I do thee and all thy kin. These words express one side of the War of the Roses which now becomes prominent, the hereditary feud. Clifford's father had been killed fighting against the Yorkists at St. Albans. So had Somerset's father. Other lords had their feelings of revenge to satisfy. And so, from Wakefield onwards, the sequel to a battle is very often the execution or murder of lords against whom some family had a feud. It is needless to argue that one side or the other began this practice. The Battle of Wakefield is the first striking example of it, but Warwick had executed more humble prisoners in Calais and in London. Prolonged war, in any country, has a brutalizing effect. The finer qualities, courage, fidelity, self-sacrifice, which often flourish in a national war or in a war in defense of the homeland, may become debased into greed, hate, and treachery in a long-fought-out civil trouble. But although the Wars of the Roses were not characterized by the sense of justice and humanity which ennobled the mutually respecting combatants in the Great Rebellion in England or the Great Civil War in the United States, Yet they were not fought entirely without principle, for there are many instances of men who were faithful to their leaders and followed them to the death. The old Earl of Salisbury had escaped from the battlefield of Wakefield, but during the night he was captured by one of the men of Andrew Trollope, taken to Pontefract, and on the morrow he was killed by the bastard of Exeter, an illegitimate son of the Duke of Buckingham. The heads of the three great lords, York, Rutland, Salisbury, with the heads of six other leading men, 
were set up in prominent places in the city of York. The Lancastrians had scored a great success, and it is a great testimony to the energy of Queen Margaret, who had gathered together from the defeated and dispersed remnants of her party such a formidable army. At the time of the battle she was in the south of Scotland. The honours of the day must be given to the Duke of Somerset, who, whether the imputation of treachery be true or not, had nevertheless shown energy, determination, and skill, such as he had previously proved himself to possess when he held Gein against Warwick. The great Duke of York was completely ruined, just when his fortunes were at their height. His success in the Parliament of 1460 seems to have robbed him of his old prudence, yet he was a wise statesman, and his triumph would not have been a bad thing for England. He had more self-restraint than his son Edward, who became king, more dignity and moderation. The courtly herald may be held to exaggerate when he calls Richard la fleur de gentillesse, but when he died, sword in hand, at the age of fifty, he left a memory behind him which, when all is said and done, is strangely free from evil imputations. End of section 17